God, we are so excited to hear from you this morning. And God, we acknowledge the reality that we are in desperate need for you to speak today. God, we pray that, Lord, you would meet us exactly where we are. Lord, in a room this full, Lord, we all have our own burdens and things that we're wrestling with and going through. God, at times throughout this week, I'm sure some of us felt like our life is just unraveling before us. So God, I pray that you would speak into our condition today, wherever that, might, that may be or whatever that might be. And God, we just need you today because we cannot conjure up our own spiritual experience apart from you. We need you today, God. So speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lindsay and I have been hooked on a TV show called Alone lately. I know there's five seasons into this show alone. We're kind of going through the first one. Now we're into the second one. But raise your hand if you're familiar with the TV show alone. Just real quick. Okay, we've got one person. Okay, let me explain it real quick. Okay, another, yeah. yeah just a little bit afraid. To scare, yeah, raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, so alone is about this show where they have 10 contestants and they take these 10 contestants and they just kind of drop them somewhere in the wilderness and they're completely alone. There's no camera crew. They have their own cameras that they're supposed to self-document based on their own experience. And they're only allowed 10 items that has to be approved. Uh, And they're just supposed to survive out there in nature. And the last one that survives gets about a half million dollars uh, in prize money. Okay, so they're competing against each other, but they have no contact with one another. They're miles and miles apart. Okay, this show is like intense. Like it is it's crazy. Like, I'm watching it. My palms are sweaty, just like, you know what? Because there are cougars out there. There are, there are big bears all around them, and they're just supposed to eat whatever they find or whatever they catch or whatever they kill. And watching the show, I've asked Lindsay, my wife, this numerous times and in different ways, and she hasn't answered this question, but I'm like, hey, babe, how long do you think I could, I could survive out there? And like, she won't answer me. Like, I, you know, you probably have learned this if you've been married for a few years, the art of like changing the, the discussion if you don't want to answer a hard question, right? So she's mastered that. So I, I've asked in different ways, like, oh, Lindsay, that looks really fun. Like, I, do you think I would enjoy that? Like, and she still just won't answer it. So I'm at the point now where if you want to ask her for me, and if it's positive, just let me know. If not, just don't, don't, even, don't even let me know. So, um, but it's, it's a great show. Like, one of the things I love about this TV show is that because they're alone for hours and days, weeks, even months on end with just a camera, that whatever is inside of them tends to come out as they're talking on camera. And you get to see all this and hear what they're wrestling with and what they're going through. And inevitably, almost every single contestant talks about how spiritual that experience actually is as they're connecting with God's creation. And they always talk about how, how small they feel. Like how, how helpless that they actually are. Like these contestants are confronted with the reality that they are not self-sufficient. They're just fully dependent on, on the nature around them in order to survive. And watching this TV show makes me so thankful that God is not like that. It makes me so thankful that God is not dependent on anything or anyone in order to survive or in order to exist. That God is not up in heaven desperate for anything, including us. The reality that God uh, doesn't need us but wants us is 
is really the essence of what we'll be talking about today as we, as we look at these two attributes of God, God's self-sufficiency and yet the fact that God is relational. And I'm going to try to um, piece these two together because they seem like contradictions on the front end, but I just want to talk about these things in a way that's actually for our good and for our benefit. And so as we look at our passage this morning in Acts chapter 17, as we're just kind of jumping into this book. So let me just give you a little bit of context. If you look at verse 16, you'll notice that Paul is in Athens. Now at this time, Athens was a famous city. It was very well known. It was actually a very educated city in that. It was, learned as, it was known as the learned city. And not only that, but it was very uh, religious. It had uh, different deities, different gods, different idols all over Athens. And in fact, you kind of see that here in verse 16, that uh, Luke, the author of Acts, writes for us that the city was full of idols, so much so that as Paul is kind of walking around and he's noticing all of these idols, there's something that's provoked within him. There's something that uh, it does something to him in, in the sense of he goes and starts to engage in conversation with people at the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace to just talk about who Jesus is and why the resurrection matters. Now, some believe that this is the peak of Paul's kind of missionary career, that this is kind of the, the climax because of, of what happens next. That as Paul is dialoguing in the synagogue and the marketplace about who Jesus is, the philosophers of Athens actually invites Paul to the Oropicus in order to discuss who this God is and what he is like. Now, this is a really, really big deal for Paul. The Oropicus, or in Latin, called Mars Hill, was the location by which these Athenians would discuss some of the most important issues of the day. They would discuss different philosophies and public morality and different religions, different cults and the education, and they just regulate city life. And so here's Paul, who gets the invite to probably the most strategic place in this region, and he's basically asked to unpack who God actually is. This is a phenomenal opportunity for Paul. This would be like Paul being asked to go to the White House to talk about the gospel in front of uh, our nation's leaders. So the question I want to look at this morning, and this has really been our question throughout this summer sermon series, is what does Paul say that God is like? That's what I want to answer this morning, and I'll answer it by sharing three realities of God that we find in this dialogue that connects God's self-sufficiency and the fact that God is also relational. Okay, three realities. Now, before we get into that, I just want to challenge you this morning and um, just let you know that if you're a follower of Jesus today, you will be put in similar situations just like Paul was here in Acts 17. Like, sure, you won't be asked to go to Mars Hill or maybe even Washington, D.C., but sooner or later, you will be asked about your faith and about who God is and what he is like. Yeah, it may not be at D.C., but it might be in the break room at your workplace. But as your coworkers find out that you're a Christian, they may ask you, who is God and what is he like? It might be your neighbors as you're doing uh, lawn work, you know, out in the middle of the day or on the weekends. Your uh, neighbors might come by and they notice that you go to church every week. They might ask you, who is God and what is he like? Or parents, as you're putting your kids to bed and you 
pray with them and tuck them in at night. They might start asking you questions about who is God and what is he like. Maybe to stall, but maybe also because they're actually curious about what Christianity is all about. Sooner or later, you will be forced to answer that question. And part of the purpose of this sermon series is to help equip you in knowing how to answer that question in such a way that spurs on the people that you're talking to with kind of curiosity and desire about who this God actually is and what he's like. And I think the best way to do that is to articulate God as he really is, as this massive, big, transcendent, glorious God, a God who is nothing like us. And I think that's exactly what Paul does here in this little mini-sermon in Acts chapter 17. So three realities that Paul highlights for us. Here's number one. Paul tells us that God is needful of nothing. It's needful of nothing. As Paul begins this little speech here in verses 22 and 23, he actually first starts by complimenting them, describes them as uh, very religious. Now that phrase there in the Greek is actually really difficult to translate it. it. The meaning kind of gets at groping for God or reaching out for God, searching for God. So Paul starts by complimenting them and says, look, I understand that religion and spirituality is really important to you. I can tell by all of the idols here. But there's one thing that, that I want to point out for you guys. There's, there's this one idol that has the inscription that says, to the unknown God. And I'm here today to explain to you who this God is and who it is that you're seeking to understand. So notice what Paul says as he's trying to explain who God is and what he's like. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So Paul's point here in the beginning of his little dialogue is he's saying because of who God is, he doesn't need anything at all. Because he's the Lord of all, the creator of all, he cannot be contained in man-made shrines or temples. Now, this is an important way that Paul uh, kind of begins his speech here because of what the philosophers in Athens believed about these different deities. What they believed is that if they could debate and discuss these different deities and gods long enough, that they could actually fully comprehend them and eventually contain them in these shrines and temples that they built. This is why they talked about the God of harvest and the God of fertility and the God of prosperity and power. And they would talk about them in length because they wanted to, to wrap their minds fully around these gods and these deities in such a way that they could contain them and even control them by getting what they wanted. And so Paul understands that. And so addresses maybe their biggest problem, and a problem that, honestly, you and I can relate with. Uh, Their problem is is our problem, too. Uh, The Athenians here, they're trying to, like, shrink God down to a size that was small enough so that they were comfortable with this God. They wanted to shrink him down so they could fully understand, fully contain him, so there was no mystery, there was no unanswered questions, So they could debate and discuss and fully articulate and know who this God actually is. And Paul stands up in front of them and says and declares to them, not with this God, can you? You can't shrink him down. 
You can't make him small enough to where you can fully comprehend him or fully contain him. In fact, Paul goes as far as to say is that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He's needful of nothing. Look, this, this, is, where, this is where Paul starts in a conversation with some religious seekers. He says, God doesn't need anything and he doesn't need you. So much for being seeker sensitive, right? Like, he doesn't care. Like, he's so concerned about creating the correct view of God and then calling them to follow this God. It's, it's helpful for us to know that as we're talking about Jesus with other people in Hamilton County. And so in verse 25, Paul says, look, God does not need anything. Now here, Paul starts to explain the attribute of what we call God's self-sufficiency. That self-sufficiency for God means that he is a, a self-contained source of perpetual and perfect sustenance. He's a self-contained source of perpetual and perfect sustenance. <clears throat> that God being the creator and the sustainer of all things is created and sustained by nothing. Okay, in other words, God is needless of any assistance. He is tireless in strength. He never thirsts, never hungers. He experiences no lack of anything. In fact, the word need is nowhere in God's vocabulary or in God's experience because a need implies a limit. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, God has no limits. In fact, it's, it's not just that God does not need anything from his creation, it's that God could not need anything from his creation. That if he needed something, he would cease to be God. Furthermore, you can think about it this way. If, if there was no creation, there was no universe, no, no humanity, God would still be infinitely loving, infinitely eternal, infinitely holy, infinitely omniscient. There is nothing that he is dependent upon. He is self-sufficient, needful of nothing. And so look, Paul is, is starting to shape for them and for us who God is and what he is like. He's trying to help the people of Athens here and us understand the, the, the eternal difference between the creator and the creation, that we can, we can not even wrap our minds around the difference. That the difference between God and us is, is greater than the difference between the sun and a candle. It's different than the ocean and a raindrop. It's, it's different more than the difference between an Arctic ice cap and a snowflake. That God is completely and qualitatively different than anything he's created or anything he will create. And one of the ways that he demonstrates the difference is in his self sufficiency. He's needful of nothing. Now Paul continues on with his speech here, and in the second half of verse 25, we learn something else about God as it relates to his self-sufficiency. That not only does God need nothing, but God is needed by all. God is needed by all. Look at verse 25. He says, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so Paul, after pointing out that God has no need of humanity to supply him with anything, Paul follows that up and declares that it is God who is the source of life and breath and everything. That God is the one who contains all, 
who gives all that is given, but who himself can receive nothing that he has not first given. Now look, I know that this is a, a pretty simple truth to understand, that God is needed by all. But there may not be a more powerful truth that confronts our pride than understanding that, that we are completely and utterly dependent upon God. That we are utterly helpless without God and his provision in our life. That everything we have is a gift from the hand of God. Look, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that your family and your friends is a gift from God? You believe that the, the money that you have is, is because of God? That God gave you the position that you have? God gave you your work ethic? God gave you your intelligence? God gave you uh, your opportunities and your personality and so on and so forth? That God gives you the air that you breathe? God gives you the spiritual gifts and your ministry here at the church that everything, all of it, is grace and it's from God. And it's crazy how, how easily pride can like sneak into our hearts. I don't know if you experience this in your own life, but it's so easy for pride to sneak into my heart and whisper that lie to me and say, no, 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 you earned it. You worked for it. Like you're the source of all that you have, not God. That you are the self-sufficient one. Isn't that true? Isn't that, that lie sneak into your heart from time to time and, and it's it's so hard to, to fight because the reality is, is that we are skilled. We are intelligent. We do have some control over some things because of what God has given us. And yet that, that lie to believe that we are the self-sufficient ones, that when we start to believe that, that's when we start to reject this attribute of God, that God is the self-sufficient one. In fact, a, a really good way to tell if you're if you're believing that lie, is just by looking at how frequent uh, your expression of gratitude is with God. How often are you, are you being thankful and expressing that thankfulness to God? Not just one time a year during Thanksgiving, but do you have a, a regular rhythm of expressing gratitude to God for all the things that he has done for you and given to you? Acknowledging that, that he is needed by all. I know in my own life, many times when I experience anxiety or worry or fear or really any other kind of sin, it's because I've embraced this lie that I'm self-sufficient, that God's not the self-sufficient one. How often have you and I fallen into worry because we're trying to control things that we can't? We're trying to figure out something that, that we just can't quite figure out. How often have you and I been imprisoned in the cell of fear because of something to do with the future, something we have no power over? And how often have you and I run to other kinds of sins because of the, the pressure that we feel because we believe the lie that we are the master of our fate? See, embracing God's self-sufficiency confronts our own pride thinking that we are self-sufficient. Can I share with you what, uh, what your pastor is learning right now, what I'm going through right now? The Lord is confronting me with this reality, just head on. The thing I'm learning right now is that sanctification, looking more and more like Jesus, is really just the process of learning increased dependency and not autonomy. 
I know that sounds basic, but I'm just going through that right now personally. That growth as a Christian, growth for me right now is it's embracing my limits as a dependent creature upon the self-sufficient God. I'm just learning to see God for who he really is. And like this morning, if you're wanting to grow, if you're wanting to, to overcome the sin that's in your life, don't, don't focus just on shrinking your temptations. Focus on enlarging your view of God as the self-sufficient king, that he is the source of everything and he is needed by all. Well, this takes us to the third and last point that I want to point out for us today in Paul's sermon The third reality of God that Paul highlights is the fact that God desires us. That God desires us. That even though God is self-sufficient, he's needful of nothing, he's needed by all, he also wants to be in relationship with us. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. Paul continues on, he says, He, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now Paul tells us that God made man and God is so sovereign that he determines the period of time in which we live, for how long that we live, and the place that we live actually live in. That God is sovereign over all of that. And yet not only is that true, but verse 27 tells us why God does that. Verse 27 says that they should seek God and find him because he's actually not far from each one of us. Now if you're tracking with me this morning, you should be wondering, Paul, how is that actually true? How can we search for God, find God, and actually get God Didn't you just get done saying that God is transcendent, that God is self-sufficient, that God is the creator and nothing like the creation? How is it that we can actually find God and get God? I thought he was totally different than all of creation. Like, why does God orchestrate your life and the lives of every single person in the face of the planet so specifically, so intentionally? Well, verse 27 tells us it's because God is relational, and he wants a relationship with you. That Paul is declaring that the greatest pursuit in life is to find God because he's searchable and he's findable, if that's a word. Look, this reality, him, him preaching this to the philosophers of, of Athens would have been absolutely mind-blowing for them to hear for the first time. Like, th- these philosophers who are worshiping these other gods, these other deities, They had no understanding of a God who, if you search for, you actually get him. See, all of these Greek and Roman gods, they were always a means to getting something else. The the god uh, Artemis was the goddess of prosperity and money. So if you wanted that, you went to her temple and made offerings. The god of Athena was the goddess of wisdom and politics. If you wanted to be smart to have wisdom, you worshipped her. The god of Nike or Nike is the goddess of victory, worshipped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan, who made you run faster, jump higher, and soar above the competition. Or the god Cloacina. This was the goddess of, of the sewer system, actually. Now, I have no idea how, to, how they worshipped her or what that looked like, but 
there you have it. You had all these other gods who really existed for you to worship in order to get something else, whatever was important to you. If you wanted prosperity, if you wanted power, if you wanted a smoother bowel movement, like you would worship these other gods. And yet Paul stands in front of them and says, look, God is so big, he's so transcendent, he's so self-sufficient that the reward when you find God is you actually get God himself. This would have been just a mic drop moment as Paul is standing at Mars Hill trying to explain to them who God is and what he is like, that you actually get God. He says this, he says, he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul's quoting from one of their own poets. This was a song written about Zeus in 600 BC that Paul just kind of hijacks and steers it to the one true living God. And don't miss this this morning, that even though God is self-sufficient, you can get God and know him. Why? Because he wants you to. He wants you to search for him and find him. And underneath all of this is the reality that God is relational. This refers to uh, what theologians call God being passable, that God can actually experience and feel different emotions caused by the creation within his nature. We see this all throughout the Bible, that God feels pity, experiences compassion. He feels even jealousy and so on because he is relational. He's able to sympathize. He's able to empathize according to Hebrews chapter 4. And ultimately, this shows us that God is relational and wants to have a relationship with you. Like I hope that you see the intentionality of my, my wording this morning, that God wants you. He doesn't need you. There's a huge difference between the two. I'm sure some of us grew up being taught that God created humanity because he needed love or companionship. It sounds so appealing, doesn't it? It sounds so good that that God created the whole world and he took a step back and he had this ache in his heart, this man-sized hole in his heart that he wanted us to fill for love and companionship, and yet Paul is saying that's not the God of the Bible at all. In fact, Fred Sanders puts it this way. He says that God did not create the world to fill the drafty mansions of heaven with the pitter-patter of little feet, that God is not pining away for companionship in a lonesome heaven. God is self-sufficient. And this passage reminds us that there's no void in God's being. There's no hole in his heart that he's trying to fill with us. But God created us with joy out of his infinite love because he desires us and wants a relationship with us. And he's wooing us to himself through his sovereign grace and love. And so we got to embrace the tension here this morning that, yes, God is self-sufficient, but don't be mistaken The God of the universe wants a relationship with you. There's not a moment that goes by that God doesn't desire to be in fellowship with you. That God wants to pour out his love and his mercy upon you. That according to Zephaniah chapter 3, that God sings over you and exalts over you and delights in you. That God actually finds you valuable This morning, because you're made in his image, even with all of your sin and doubts and uh, inconsistency, God wants all of you exactly 
as you are with all of your mess. And he's going to love you so perfectly not to leave you there, not to leave you in your sin, but he's going to lead you towards the way of everlasting life and joy. But God wants us. He doesn't need us. One of the things that I love about God's self-sufficiency, this attribute, is the fact that nothing can deplete any aspect of God. Nothing can can drain any aspect of God. This is really important. Like God's not some cosmic energizer bunny who's up in heaven who eventually you need to change the batteries. He's he's not this God who feels so drained uh, because he's loving a people that's so hard to love. No, it's because God is self-sufficient means that there's nothing about him that, is, that, that drains or he doesn't complain about the way that he loves us. That God doesn't turn off the lights up in heaven and put his head down on the pillow and say to himself, man, that was an exhausting day. I was trying to sustain the, the whole universe. And then I've got Chris Beals over here who's so high maintenance, who's so demanding. Man, I just hope he has a better day tomorrow. I hope he gets... Taco Bell tomorrow, so he's easier to love. Like, God doesn't do that. God's love tank is never drained in, in, how, he expen- uh, in how he extends his love towards his children. And that is really good news for us. Because, look, we are, we are messy people. We are about as high maintenance as it gets with issues and doubts and temptations and worries. And God does not bat an eye. So we need both attributes of God. We need God's self-sufficiency and the fact that God is relational because if God was just self-sufficient and not relational, all you have is a cold, distant drill sergeant for a God. And on the other hand, if you just have a God who's relational and not self-sufficient, you just have a God who's just like you, maybe a little bit bigger and stronger, but you also have a kind of a crazy boyfriend who's a stage five clinger who looks to you to validate his existence. And look, both are dangerous paths if you view God in that way. So we need both. That's essentially what Paul is saying here in verse 29. As Paul kind of concludes and and gives his, um, his concluding thoughts about their religious approach to God, he basically says if God is the creator, you're foolish to think that you can reduce him to something that you can hold in your hands. You can't reduce them to being just self-sufficient or just relational or just loving and not also full of justice, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. And then he gets to verses 30 and 31, and we'll close with this. But Paul finally gets into the gospel here and shows us how it is that we respond to a God who is self-sufficient and relational. That Paul makes it so clear that the correct response to this self-sufficient God is to repent of your sin, to leave your sin where it is, and to enter into this relationship with a God who loves you and desires you. And Paul says that the response is to, is to put your faith upon Jesus who died for you on the cross and who is resurrected from the dead, who coming a day he will actually judge all of mankind. This is Paul's invitation to the Athenians, and this is God's invitation to us this morning, is to come to the end of ourselves, to stop trying to be self-sufficient, and to put our trust and our faith upon a God who wants us and desires us. Look, aren't you so glad that King Jesus came to us to save us, 
exactly where we are, not where we should be. Like God saves us not in a state of being self-sufficient, but God saves us in our lack and in our need. And look, God's not going to save you until you come to the end of yourself, until you realize your full need of this self-sufficient God. That he's not going to force himself into your life. He's not going to barge in if he's just going to be an add-on. But God will come and save you when you've come to the end of yourself. Look, have you done that today? Have you trusted in God who is self-sufficient but wants you and desires you? Let it be today. The day of salvation comes to you in your life. Well, if you have trusted in Jesus, I just want to challenge you as we close this morning just to take Paul's invitation seriously. That Paul says that you can seek after God and to find him. Look, I just want to challenge you this morning. Like, you have the, the self-sufficient God who is basically waiting for you every moment of the day for you to know him and for you to experience him on a deeper level. I just want to challenge you today to not, not be the philosophers in Athens who are so distracted and busy debating and discussing all kinds of other things that they were missing the one true living God who was right there in their midst, who wasn't far from them. I just want to challenge you to to not let a day go by, not let a moment go by that you're not pursuing and seeking and finding God because he's actually not far from each one of us. We have a God who's self-sufficient and also a God who's relational. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for being this God that is just impossible to fully comprehend, a God who is so completely other. You are really nothing like us. God, we try to understand, we pursue you, we want to learn more about you. And yet, God, at the same time, we really want to embrace this mystery and this tension that you are completely other than us, and yet you desire us, you want a relationship with us. So God, I pray that you would give us a hunger and a desire to pursue you, that as Paul said, to actually seek you and to find you, not as a theological paradigm, but as a person who is relational. God, we want to know you deeper because we know that that will change us and that will grow us. So do that work in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.